The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and slowly working up until a safe load can be obtained. Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. So, what's been going on, everyone? If you're like me, your hair is probably on fire, you have a fat lip, a sore elbow, and someone peed on the rug in the living room. After the last load development session, practice match, and actual match, I went from feeling like I had it down to feeling like I got kicked in the shin, had it back down again, and then stubbed my toe. As Missy Elliott once said, I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. What a week. So what's in store for today? We have a results rundown, which includes some loop closing, some more critical thinking skills that need to be used, and hopefully an outlook for the last of the few matches that are coming up for the rest of the season. I know I joked about the season coming to a close earlier, but by golly, it's actually upon us. Crap. We have to dip into the load lounge to beat a dead horse after the vet just gave it CPR. Sorry, animal lovers. We have a word from our sponsors and a second look at wind adjustments from a reader that might be helpful to listeners that I thought I'd just pass along. All right, let's dive right into the results rundown so we can face this dilemma head on. The dilemma more popularly known as the Elysio Saga. All right, my people, we have a quick results rundown to chat about a testing session, a practice match, and a real-life match with real-life people. Let's rip the band-aid off with the practice match and real-life match, and I don't know why I keep calling it a real-life match. Anyway, the numbers as they stand. During my practice 80-round match, it was a 790 out of 800 with a saved round. That was a really good day, except for that misfired round. That was upsetting. And we'll get to it. And the fact that this was just a 200-yard reduced match made it hurt just a little bit less. And that I was using three different primers in five different brass lots with three different powders and three different bullets helped. Or maybe it didn't. I was shooting the last of my crockpot of random ammo from the last two years. It was, what did we call that in college? WAP. Or jungle juice, aka suicide drink, bar rag, whatever you want to call it. It was just 88 rounds of leftovers. While that was fun, we had to get to an actual match and I fired a 494. Also, not bad considering the hurdles that popped up throughout the day. So let's start from the beginning load testing and practice day. Looking backwards to the previous match, I had spoken with Gary Alicio about my hang fires and misfires and primer dimples being all over the clock on the primers. He had indicated that it was likely a bent firing pin. So he instructed me to take my 6BR bolts firing pin assembly and pop it into my 223 bolt and try that and see if it helps. Well, on the bright side of things, no hang fires. On the complete opposite side of the spectrum, three misfires. At this point, I had misfires on three different brands of primers, so let's clear that out. It's not a primer issue. Still off-centered primer strikes, though. 
Oh well, at that point, I knew that I was going to have to swap to a different caliber later in the day, but for now, we were doing some load testing. I had some old powder from, oh, 2001 from Vitavori that I wanted to put through the ringer. It was a really old eight pound keg that my grandfather had sold to me, and I was hoping to get a little bit more zip out of my bangers since it was limiting me on case capacity due to my bullet seating depths being so short in the throat. N135 kind of fit the bill here, so I loaded some up and went to go play around. I wasn't unimpressed, but nothing really stood out as whiz bang on. And compared to the load of Reloader 15 that I was toying around with with some spare rounds from Perry, the velocities actually seemed to match those. So I'll have to ponder that one just a little bit more a little bit later on. But after I got home, I knew it was time to make a change. After all those off-center primer strikes and the misfires, I had now one 223 bolt that's bent two firing pins. Obviously, continuing in the 223 was not going to happen, so it was time to switch over to 6BR. Switching to the 6BR is kind of like rekindling with an old girlfriend. I don't know why we're here. I didn't plan on meeting like this, but it's going to be fun again, I bet. Nice to see you again. Now get in my barrel and fire a lot of X's, please. It's like when Forrest Gump ran into Jenny later in life. Definitely not plan A. But that's my gun. Me and 6BR goes together like peas and carrots. So I went from having a perfectly worked up rifle working flawlessly, almost, down to a bolt doing things that you just don't expect from a high-quality custom receiver manufacturer like Pierce Engineering to do. So, to rebarrel it, I removed the scope, twisted off the foreend, popped off the barrel, gave it a good cleanup on the inside of the action, inside and out, screwed on the 6BR barrel, strapped on the foreend again, and put back on the scope. I took it straight to the match at Fort Defiance with no sighting in time, except for a few rounds at the 200-yard line right before the match started, and surprisingly found out that my zero was within a quarter minute of elevation and only four clicks of windage at 200 yards compared to my 223. That's either impressive work by the gunsmith or coincidental, but either way, I was happy as a clam. It was just a 50-round quick match at a beautiful range in West Central Illinois at the Fort Defiance Rifle and Pistol Club. With two full relays on electronic targets, it made for a great day, except all those damn biting flies and all those sweat bees. The match was catered afterwards with brats, hot dogs, and chili, and chili dogs, which made for a fantastic way to finish the day and a fun ride home. So we started off in offhand, and about that second shot in standing is when I thought to myself, boy, rapids are not going to be pleasant. The thought crossed my mind as I was closing the bolt on my 6BR round, which had a Sierra 107 on top of 29.4 grains of Varget. The round was really, really hard to close. After firing it, it was really, really, really hard to open. Rut row. Unfortunately, that's the only load that I brought with me today. I hadn't shot 6BR since last year, and I don't recall much about the operation of it because my memory, although impeccable, is mighty short. I know that my rapids were going to be an absolute struggle. Well, I tried to Jack Jones this hoopty, and as it turns out, that 
takes a lot of practice and mansmanship that I have yet to develop. For reference on history here, Jack Jones is a match rifle shooter who rips the bolt like an angry gorilla and puts his entire arm into it. Turns out that's really tough to do. Did I like that? Did I enjoy that at all? No, I did not. This was going to make for a long two minutes of rapid fire. After having to adapt and attempt to overcome, I walked away with a 494 and a subscription to a new gym membership to man up a little bit. But that bolt lift was ridiculously tough. Like, in rapid prone, I had to drop the gun out of my shoulder and nearly two-hand that thing open. I had it recorded on my cell phone, and it was fun to watch, but it gave me the heebie-jeebies thinking about that moment happening again in the future. Which brings me to the troubleshooting section of the day. What would you do when you got home that day? Here's the facts as I can best remember them. Lapua Brass fired one time, full-length resized. No neck turn. A Remington 7.5 primer. Sierra 107 on top of 29.4 grains of Varget. Most people shoot around the 30 grain mark, so not overly hot. Stiff bolt close, stiffer bolt opening, smooth retraction and ejection. What's the thought here? I'll tell you what I'd do right there. I'd throw that piece of junk wimpy bolt gun straight out the trash and get a real gun like my AR-10 with a tactical red dot on each rail with flashlights and an ACOG scope with a 63-round magazine, two slings and afterburner bolts by Rappy Products. Isn't that right, Dad? Okay, I'll come home to my troubleshooting thoughts in a bit, but first, the rest of the match. The rest of the match actually went off without a hitch. But I did have a really intriguing thought about my performance with the service rifle. Slow prone to me is kind of interesting. I'm not trying to sound boastful or braggy, but with the match rifle, it is the easiest phase of the day. Which is what service rifle shooters had told me for years. I can literally lay down with the match rifle and just gently pull the trigger when it settles in the X-ring. It's like riding a bicycle down the sidewalk and not touching the grass. It's not that hard. The same is not when I shoot service rifle, though. I lay there, I will dress it up really nicely, and then I'm sort of fighting random high and low shots, left and right, the dreaded corner shots, and then pile up 8Xs in a row, and then fire a 9 at 12, or 6, or 10, or whatever o'clock. I don't have these similar problems with a match rifle like I do in service rifle. Frustrating, but it's a reality. So I finished tied for second behind the mystical service rifle savant, Conrad, one point ahead of us. Sorry, Conrad, praise be his name, top down, left shoulder, right shoulder, giddy up. I actually was tied with John from the western part of the state. Remember him? He was the guy squatted up with me a few weeks ago who would use the safety in slow fire. He really put down a hammering score of 494, which was really fun to watch. So good shooting, Conrad. Good shooting, John. And then as I was leaving... Regarding my malfunctions and woes, Conrad said something to the effect of, Have you learned your lesson yet? Isn't it time to switch back to service rifle? Of course, I wasn't quick enough to think about a decent response at the time, but have I learned my lesson yet? Well, no, not really. But I have learned a lot so far. I've learned a lot of lessons, and it's taught me a bunch about my shooting game, reloading, malfunctions, my errors and my shooting technique, 
and a whole bunch of other items. When I do get back to Service Rifle, I'm not saying that I'm going to be a wizard or anything, but I will have learned a whole lot to carry with me into the future. So, back to the troubleshooting thing. Here I am at my loading bench after a three-hour drive, trying to think of ways to reduce the bolt lift for rapids. My gut was immediately telling me to lighten the load. I remember from shooting Silhouette so many years ago that when we would shoot the shorter range steel animals at 200, 300, and 385 meters, that we used a Sierra 107 grain bullet. But at 500 yards, we had to knock down a steel ram which weighed like 55 pounds and had flat metal feet. When you're trying to do that, you need to have speed and mass in your bullet to create energy. My grandfather would do that by bumping up the load to a Sierra 142 grain bullet over a stout load of powder in Lapua brass. I remember sometimes having a really tough time closing and opening the bolt. As a 90 pound bean pole, he'd sometimes have to help me. I was like 10 at the time, so don't judge me too much there, but lightening the load was what I first thought of here at Fort Defiance. Also, Tubb mentioned that in his high power book. Rapids were a lighter load for ease of bolt manipulation. Cool. There's two resources pointing me in hopefully the right direction. With my next match coming in three days, I had no time to order lighter bullets and hope that they would arrive in time. Maybe our friends at Amazon can help start overnight projectile shipping. Hint, hint. I went to the reloading vault and found some 87 grain Hornady VMAXs. Bingo. My buddy Mark indicated that although they have a comparatively thinner jacket, they would be suitable for 6BR across the course. Okie silly dokio, game on. But you know me, I had to think some more about it, and other thoughts that I had was, what about the headspace? Was I bumping it correctly? It was only once fired brass, and I hadn't really paid much attention to bolt manipulation last year because I was new to match rifle and was just dorking around. I figured if it was tough to close and tough to open, then maybe headspacing could be working against me. If the case is too long, then that might be part of my answer. Of course, if the case wasn't too long, it should be easy to close on the bolt and I'd be chasing a wrong lead. So I popped out the primers of a few fired cases from the day and compared them to resized brass I had from last year. Son of a nugget. They were either the exact same or within one thousandth of each other, meaning I wasn't bumping the shoulder back at all. Normally I like at least three thousandths of shoulder bump. If I'm shooting a prone match, different story. I, I like an easy bolt, but it's not going to end the day for me in slow fire if there's a little resistance. But for rapids? Yeah, in your dreams. How about bolt issues? Possible. I went back and checked, and it was lubed properly, and without a case or a round in it, it ran like a dream. I took an unfired case and checked its feeding, no problem. I then took a Sierra 107 and a Hornady 87 grainer and loaded them in two dummy cases to check feeding issues. No problems there in virgin brass. The Hornady's gave me just the slightest touch of feedback on closing, but nothing that raised concerns and nothing compared to what it was in the match. So what's my plan here? Well, depending on when this is recorded, this is probably in the past, which it is. 
As of Monday, October 2nd, my plan is to do some load testing on Hornady 87s, starting from 29 grains to 31 grains of Varget, with special emphasis on checking bolt lift. The cases have been checked for headspace and have about 3,000 shoulder bumps, so that will eliminate that variable. And I'm sort of in a bind here. As of Monday, I don't have enough time to test these rounds before going into the Tuesday league match, so I've loaded up 87 grainers in properly headspaced cases and 30 grains of Varget, which has been proven to be a stellar load in most rifles. Hey, I know what you're going to say here. You brought an untested load to a match. Yeah, I did. And if this were a big match, it would be a different story, but I can't afford to save rounds or work on sloppy technique because of my sticky bolt with Sierra 107s. And I don't have time, so whatever inaccuracies that I get from this untested load is just something I'm going to have to accept. On the bright side, I will have done some testing Tuesday morning before the match with these rounds, so I'll know where the best load lies before I start the match. I just might not have the best load with me. For Tuesday, priority number one, bolt lift. Priority number two, accuracy. If I can find good accuracy but poor bolt lifting abilities, then the problem lies somewhere else and I'll have chased the wrong rabbit hole. It happens. But with limited time and limited resources, I have to just choose the path of least resistance at this point. So I'm curious, what else would you have looked for in this? It's a no-turn chamber. It's very accurate. It's built for across-the-course shooting and mid-range prone shooting. I'm jumping all of my bullets at least 10,000s. Do you think I'm on the right path here? Let me know what you think. JP at HPHpodcast.com. Welcome back to one of my favorite segments of the show. Partly because I find it fascinating, partly because it's based on numbers and factual data. Welcome back to the Load Lounge. Today's maybe going to hit a nerve of some people because it's one of those classic chopping off my left arm in order to lose a few pounds dilemmas. We're going to cover a few areas of the loading bench, then try to back it up with some data based on my experience. I'm going to go 20 different directions, argue 20 different ways, cut back, counter my own arguments, contradict myself, and end up nowhere by the end of this. So buckle up, boys and girls, I'm about to confuse myself. But before we get going, I need to state this very clearly. The following is based on mostly my experiences. I'm using data and experience to help justify some of my arguments here. There are a million different arguments on each side of the coin that can be used to try to argue opposing viewpoints and have valid points. There are segments of this discussion that have some gray area, admittedly, and need to be taken with a grain of salt or use of judgment because not every situation warrants this discussion. But I'm going to try to make some sense of why I say what I say. And remember, never use my loading data that I provide. Work up from a more conservative charge and reference your reloading manuals for safe loading information. Moving on. Load development matters. It absolutely does. I've brought this up before in a previous episode, 
But here's the two sides of the coin that we all hear along the firing line all day. First, your gain in high power would be better spent practicing at the range than working on a good load. Opposing viewpoint says, though not often stated flat out, load development is just as important. Now, probably more than half of you guys and gals are rolling your eyes right now saying, get off it already. Well, I'm here to say, no, I'm going to get on it. Now, like I said in my short disclaimer, there is an infinite number of scenarios for a million different shooters that warrant utilizing each side of the coin. Obviously, a new shooter like me in 2019 could benefit from more practice. While a consistent X-ring destroyer of a shooter like Miss Amanda Elsenboss could afford to tweak a load in order to find improvements or versatility. Not to say that both of these folks don't deserve the other side of the coin, like the new shooter making good ammo or the national champion staying proficient at the range, but one side of the coin could be argued a little more easily. Why I'm here today is to give a little more love to the load development side of things because the you need to practice more than load smarter argument is so cliche and overused where it feels like people arguing the point just want to say their standard statement and then step out of the room. I'm not, hear me, not saying it's the correct argument. I'm not. I'm saying that it does hold a little more weight than people give it credit for and should be taken a little bit more seriously. I want to emphasize here that load development is crucial. Load development? You must mean stuffing 24 grains of hooch down the neck and going to practice more until you get burned out trying to fix the alleged poor position or trigger control. I love that discussion because, and let this sink in a bit, you'll never know what you are capable of and what to improve on if you are shooting at the 100% capability level of the round that you've never tested. Meaning, if you are constantly training and improving, then in theory, at some point, you're going to outshoot your ammo. And if your random load that you picked up from that one guy a few firing points down with the distinguished badges being used, it's likely that at some point you'll probably outshoot that load. In other words, you'll have a hold much tighter than the ammunition is capable of holding. It's possible. Now, I don't mean that a load that has been proven to work in your rifle is going to be outshot by you at some point. I mean that a person who doesn't test their load is more susceptible to outshooting their ammunition at some point in their development. So here's where I'm going with all this. I want to share some data about my load testing and compare it to how it would perform on the range. And I want to relate it to how a lack of testing this stuff could have dramatically affected my performance on the range as well. A quick side story, my background is in silhouette shooting prior to high power. Now, when I was shooting silhouette, admittedly, I was not involved in the building, the gunsmithing, and the loading for us because I was too young to fully understand what my grandfather was doing. But I was there for most of the process. I loved watching him do what he did. I was involved one way or another with him building our rifles from the ground up, coming up with some load development, testing it, and then putting it to work for the season. This is probably the cause to my load development curiosity. I have saved a ton 
of targets in my file cabinet from over the years of all my load testing. I have measured nearly all of them from shot to shot, from high shot to low shot, in an effort to nail down the tightest groups. I've gone through a few different lots of N140, Reloader 15, IMR4895, H4895, and Varget. Some of these powder switcheroos have been out of curiosity, and some of them have been on the ability through 2020 and 2022 just to not find them. But each and every time that I switched powders and switched barrels, I load tested. I've gone through my first A2 upper, Midge, Bethel, Hilda, Mildred, and Giselle. That's six different barrels that liked 12 to 15 different loads of their favorite powder flavoring. That's a lot. Could I have just tossed 24 grains of Reloader 15 in the case and called it good? Sure, I guess I could have. But you know what I don't like? Leaving points on the table. Not having absolute confidence in my loads when I'm on the firing line and not being able to relate to other shooters when they talk about variations in the loads that they use. Why do I keep referencing this arbitrary load of 24 grains of Reloader 15? Well, when I first started high power, that was kind of the way to go. And in a lot of cases, it still is. I've heard people say 24 grains of most powders under whatever bullet in the 223 will perform really well. And that's not too far from the truth. In my experience, 24 grains of Reloader 15 produce the best results with the Sierra 69s, 77s, 80s, and Burger 80.5 in a whopping zero barrels that I've had the pleasure of working with. Admittedly, it was close in a few and I made a few tweaks, but it was never my top choice. Now, I don't mean to pick on that load for any reason other than it seems to be the most popular, and I understand that it's worked extremely well over a number of years with a number of shooters all over the country, and we're getting a bit off topic here, but while I've found that it has never been 24 grains of Reloader 15 to be the best performing load in any of my rifles, it does seem to perform acceptably across a majority of my rifles if I'm maybe shooting, say, practice. So if we were in fantasy land and I hypothetically took every single load that I've ever tested and ran it across every single barrel that I've used since I started high power, 24 grains of Reloader 15 would probably perform the most consistently as far as group size overall. Statistically speaking, that's possible. If you think about it, it may not be the best load for any of the barrels, but it may be consistently the second or third place finisher in all the barrels, which would average it toward the top of the list. Just like your favorite NASCAR race driver never getting a season win, but still making the championship playoff by consistently placing in the top three. So that being said, though, I have a bunch of rounds loaded up in the old practice bag for when I need to sort some stuff out. Old Lake City Brass, CCI 450s, Sierra 77 Rejects, and you guessed it, 24 grains of Reloader 15. I found that to be fairly versatile. It'll never pop primers, it's temperature tolerant, and is likely to shoot okay enough for practice if I have to use it three years down the road with a totally different barrel. See, I'm not picking on it but let's get a bit more technical and head to the load development department. 
on a bit of a pivot here, my testing process usually works like this. If I look at it more from a basic top-down plan, it's comprised of five steps. Research, planning, loading, testing, and analysis. Research, planning, loading, testing, analysis. Replata, replata, or PLTA. All right, a few days or even weeks before going to the range to test, I'll start doing a little research about what I want to get out of the rifle. Is this a new barrel? Cool, I've got a clean slate to work with. Maybe I'm running out of N140 and I need to switch. Okay, no problem, let's go hit the books. I'll refer to a few different resources to figure out what I want to use as a starting charge and a maximum load that I want to use throughout the season realistically not to exceed the hot temps of the season. So I'll check both the Sierra reloading manual, I'll check the Burger reloading manual, and maybe the Hodgson's or the Vitavoria reloading data. Although I found a few of these manuals to be significantly more conservative on the maximum load than service rifles typically choose to follow. If I'm switching to a new powder that I've not used before, I'll give it a quick glance and make sure I'm not doing anything dumb. Another resource I'll use is to chat with the other shooters that have had that powder before, especially if they're using it right now. Sometimes that can give you an idea of where an accuracy node might lie, not necessarily where it is. Remember, their gun, their barrel, their seating depths, their primers, their neck tension, you get it, it's not yours. And as a secondary digression on my first digression, the NRA Metallic Silhouette National Championships used to survey each shooter for their equipment, their gunsmith, and some portion of their loading data. I'm wondering if the NRA and CMP did that at the High Power Nationals, what would come of it? Now there's a fun idea. Anyway, after I've gathered a decent idea of what my ideal start and finishing charges are, I'll start with my planning phase. There are two types of groups I like to work with. For my initial testing, I like to shoot a four-shot group. Why four? No idea. I guess it's because I like to attribute one poor shot to the shooter and toss out that side of the data. My grandfather gave me great advice one time, and that's after the second shot of group testing, the group never gets smaller. That's true, unless you throw out the wide shot of the group. After I do my first round of testing and I'm doing some fine-tuning or verification, I'll typically do what my grandfather calls the load shoot-off, where I'll actually shoot a few more shots, say maybe five or six, just to see how it performs a little more consistently over a few shots. So for that initial testing charge, though, four shots, and I'll increase the powder charge by two-tenths each time. My last successful test was the Sierra 77 grain Match Kings with N140 out of the match rifle. From my research phase, I decided to set my starting load of 22.0 grains, working up to 23.4. So working up in two tense groupings, that's eight different groups of four-shot groups, 32 rounds total. As you probably know from previous episodes, I use cases that are the same weight, but now I'm actually questioning if that's even important. I recently listened to a YouTube recording of Eric Cortina interviewing Jack Neary. That's a new name for me, but apparently he is a hammer at bench rest. He does not weigh his brass. Why? He questioned, do you know where that extra weight is? Are you expecting it to be in the case body? Because if it was, that would make a difference. But if that extra weight was in the case head near the primer pocket, or maybe it's overly thick in the neck, like a thick neck Tony, 
now it doesn't matter so much. So now, of course, I'm second guessing everything in life. But anyway, back to my loads. 22.0 to 23.4 of N140. If this sounds a little low, this is with my Starline 223 brass, which is really thick stuff and generates some pretty high pressures. Since I have the resources available, I'll load them on my Auto Trickler V4 and get a charge within two hundredths of a grain. It's a little excessive tolerance, but you know, I truly believe that there should not be any slop in this process. So I loaded up my 32 rounds, labeled them on the box so I don't mix them up. Been there, done that and grab some targets and a chronograph and headed out to the range. For the time being, I'm doing my testing at 100 yards. My range setup is ideal for that, and that's just what I'm doing for right now. Some people prefer 200 or 300 yards, and maybe that's better. I don't know. During the testing phase, I'll set up targets that allow me to hold as precisely as possible. For the service rifle, it's a reduced 600-yard target. I can use the White Oak Distinguished Rifleman Scope's dot or circle and be confident of shot placement. I'll even reduce the trigger pull down to about 2 pounds or so in order to help reduce movement of pulling the trigger. I'll shoot the service rifle off a radius sandbag with the sandbag under my grip. I found this works really, really well and it helps me keep a constant head position and give constant shot placement. Some people suggest shooting from position. Well, I know my hold in prone. It's not what I would consider good enough for load testing, so I put it on the bench. Other alternatives is to shoot from a position with a sandbag below your sling hand. That's another option I might look at in the future, but again, I just don't trust myself as a shooter enough to hold steady enough to group well. For my Elysio, however, I have one of Gary Elysio's bolt-on bipods. Really steady. Place the sandbag underneath the butt pad and it's a really solid platform. I'll use a plussed shaped target with four aiming circles at the end of the plus lines, which is great to aim for with 32 power scopes. Regardless if I'm testing with the service rifle or match rifle, I'm strapping on a magneto speed chronograph on the barrel to watch my velocities. Sure, I could use an electronic target, but I don't think that's a good idea unless you own one and have it calibrated to read the speeds correctly. In other words, just like John Holliger had alluded to in one of White Oak's recent Facebook posts, if you hop up on an electronic target for public or match use, you are going to have large variances in your velocities between each electronic target on that firing line. I don't trust them for load testing. Grouping? Sure. Velocities? No. If you go shoot the same load on five different electronic targets, you're going to get five different average speeds. Useful in some scenarios, maybe, but not for this one. If you have one that you bring to the range every time you load test and it's calibrated, sure, maybe. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm not sure how consistent they are from day to day, even if they're privately owned. I'm going to leave that one in the maybe table. Anyway, my goal with the Karani is to get an average speed of each load. I find this information interesting and somewhat useful in some situations. First off, I like to see how much the velocity changes with each grain of extra powder. Not super useful information to have, but I like to have an idea, especially if I find out later that my muzzle velocities are far lower or higher than someone else using similar powder loads. Prime example here, when I was using that white lightning hot lot of Reloader 15 last year, 
I was blowing primers. My buddy Mark asked me what my muzzle velocities were, and I mentioned they were in the range of 2850 plus on my Sierra 77s. After his well-recognized cringe face, he mentioned that most people were sitting in the 2700 to 2750 range. I believe those were the numbers if I recall correctly, so don't quite quote me on this one. I don't have them on hand at the moment, so that's just where we are. Anyway, it gave me an idea of what I needed to drop my charge to for some additional load testing based on the velocities I was looking for. Where I was using 24 grains of Reloader 15 as my starting point, I later had to revise that to 22.8. And yes, 22.8 grains of Reloader 15 in a Lake City case with Sierra 77, I was still far faster than anybody else on the firing line. Another useful situation was when I was shooting my first 1,000-yard match at Camp Atterbury this year in 308 with the Sierra 155-grain Palma bullets. I hadn't shot that rifle past 100 or 200 yards, but I knew the average muzzle velocity for my rifle, so it was fairly simple to plug it into the Applied Ballistics app just to see what sort of elevation I should need, as well as what the wind adjustments would be per mile an hour per wind. So back to the bench rest. I'll fire my loads, retrieve my targets, and before I tear them off, I'll label each group and I'll take a picture with my phone. That's a clutch move because it lets me look at the stuff later on down when I'm on the road or maybe a few months down the road if I'm looking at the data later in the season. And finally, we've reached the analysis phase. Typically, I'll drop the wide shot and measure the distances between the shots of each group. I typically tend to favor the elevation side of the groupings for determining the quality of the load, especially for the 600-yard line stuff, but I do watch the horizontal dispersion as well. There's a few key things that I look for when trying to finalize an initial load. First off, is the grouping good? Second, are the adjacent loads good as well? Example here, with the 77s I was just testing, 22.4 was the best performing group, and 23.0 was just right behind it. However, if I drop the load and increase the load by two tenths of a grain, would the grouping still be performing well? In other words, was 22.2 through 22.6 performing the best, or was 22.8 through 23.2 performing the best? Because if I'm going to have high and low temperatures, or having charges dumped in the case with a bit of slop, will it be forgiving if the pressures of the case are higher or lower? My groupings varied quite a bit here when I strayed away from the 22-4 and the 23 groups. Throughout those eight groups, I went from shooting them in darn near the same hole to grouping them over an inch apart. A lot can happen in just a few tenths. Well, 22.4 had the better groups when I looked up and down by two tenths, and in the end, it won the initial load test. I say initial test because we're not quite done here, but for all intents and purposes, that's good enough to get started with this season. Remember, I don't load for the whole season. I load for what I'm about to shoot in the next week or two. If I'm going to do anything else, it might be to test seating depths. Usually, when I'm in service rifle with the burgers, I use the same sort of process with the seating depths that I did with the powder charge testing. Research, plan, load, test, analyze. 
If you're going to start into load testing here, here's another point I'd like to make if you're dipping into it for the future. Write, write, write. Write down everything and keep it organized. Write down your test results, your speeds, your standard deviations, your seating depths, your testing temperatures outside, and so on. Write it down so when you need to reference it later on down the road, you have it available. Even if you don't need it for that specific rifle because you've shot out that barrel, it might be helpful referencing the data later on in life if you're helping someone else out or if you're coming back to a powder that maybe you haven't seen in years. R.I.P. H4895. That being said, I have a ton of stuff saved up over the years. Currently, I'm working with three different rifles in 223, one in 6BR, one in 308, and a few in 30-06. That's a lot of info to keep straight. I have a lot of notebooks, a lot of data on my computer, and having a buildup over the years has proven to me helpful. I want to hit on one more point, and that's back to the relationship to practice versus loading data. I had previously said that at some point, using some arbitrary load that you picked up off the side of the highway that is possible, you'd be beating your head against a brick wall in your practice at some point where you started out shooting your ammo. Take a fresh new marksman level shooter who shot in a few matches with borrowed equipment. Let's call him Forrest, I guess, because that's a name that's stuck in my brain right now, who suddenly has the means to practice nearly every single day. Maybe Forrest won the lottery or he sued a moving company for stealing and selling all his beanie babies, whatever. The man is on a mission, and now he has all the time in the world to sit down at the range that he has built in his backyard, and he can practice all he wants. So he is set and determined and ready to start knocking off goals like becoming an expert or a master or earn the distinguished distinction. Whatever, doesn't matter, he's motivated, and now he has the means. Forrest has 2,000 rounds that his friend gifted him for free to help get things going. And it was 23.2 grains of H4895 with Sierra 77s. Lucky dog. As Forrest tackles that endeavor head-on, he's going to start improving and start noticing patterns in his practice that he needs to fix. For example, maybe he's in rapid prone and he's seeing shots go to the 4 and 5 o'clock direction, which he quickly learns is from trigger control. Or he's seeing elevation stringing out of a rapid sit and then find out it's because he's subconsciously tensing his left hand during the string. Well, he's going to start fixing these things one by one and begin to improve over time. And then at some point, it's probably maybe going to happen. Forrest is going to reach a point where he starts trying to fix issues that aren't really there. His hold has developed into such a strong hold that his prone hold is hypothetically a half minute of angle, but his ammo is grouping one and a quarter minutes of angle. Half minute hold, one and a quarter minute grouping. In data speak, the system is capable of shooting one and three quarters minute grouping around the target. That's the best he will likely get, and that's a big swing. But Forrest doesn't realize that. Forrest is kind of like me, sort of dumb and dense. So unfortunately, he keeps trying to improve and try new techniques and experiences the same frustrations 
And you see where I'm going with this whole made-up hypothetical scenario. Is Forrest a better shooter now than when he started? Yes, he is. Absolutely. If he continued to stick with the you-need-to-practice-more-than-work-on-your-load-development motto, he would go bananas. Now, I know I'm presenting a scenario that's favoring my side of the argument here. And in all reality, someone that's that dedicated of the sport isn't going to ignore load data as being part of the equation. But in reality, if someone is capable of holding that well, this argument of practice over load development starts to break down. When Forrest is starting to outshoot his arbitrary load, he's reached a point where his progress is going to plateau quickly. Now, I use this arbitrary load of 24, reloader 15 in my practice rounds because it's likely to give decent results. It's likely, but also maybe not. But it's practice. I don't really care if I call an X and it goes into the 10 ring. It makes me focus harder. And I know that it's not the best performing ammo in this rifle, so it's not a huge deal. And I'm not going to be caught dead in a match with some random ass stuff I found in my cabinet. But... Like betting on the seven and craps, it'll probably perform well over a large swath of rebarrels, which is which is fine going through the motions of practice. So let's quickly put some data into action. In my testing with Bethel, the upper and barrel combination that I was using back in 2022, 24 grains of reloader 15 gave me vertical grouping of over an inch and a half at 100 yards. Inch and a half. That's not really that good. But if I was to hypothetically use that in competition, that's three quarters of a minute up and three quarters of a minute down, give or take. Put that at 300 yards, and now I find myself uncomfortably close to the nine ring vertically if I'm able to hold a perfectly centered X and nail the wind call on the first try. Practice more or load development? Well, you pick. Personally, I prefer to tighten that up a bit before I spend so much time practicing. Let me just ask myself a few questions so that I sound kind of smart. Do I need to go test five different powders with four different short range and four different long range bullets at various seating depths at different case weights and blah, 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 blah? No, I don't think you do. However, if you're switching to a new barrel or running out of a working powder or you're switching to different bullets, hit the range. Something will be different. Maybe it's only a few tenths. Maybe it's bang on as it is. Maybe it's a half a grain. You're not going to know unless you test it. And on those points, I hate the argument that the standard load is good enough for what we do. For what we do? Would you be happy if someone gave you the keys to a 68 fastback and it was missing a cylinder in the engine? Neither would I. I do not just want good enough. Good enough? No, I want the best. Why leave something better on the table when the process to find it is so simple? Don't sell yourself short of what you deserve, because you deserve better. So, in summation of this really long-winded ranty segment here, I'm not saying that load testing is the key to becoming the best shooter. My argument lies in that it can be crucial as a part of the equation, and it should not be neglected. In saying the ever-common, you need to practice not load development as a blanket statement might be appropriate in some places in a shooter's career, 
But when you just use it as a blanket statement to everybody you meet, it's just downright lazy. The time is 8.14. Today's episode is brought to you by the fine folks over at Feral Pharrell's. If you aren't familiar with their products, you absolutely should be. They've given us the ever-popular Primer Reinvigorating Spray and other household staples like Organic Brake Cleaner and Chocolate Flavored Case Lube. Today they want us to know about their top seller, Feral Pharrell's Cheek Piece Rash Reducer. In the early 1990s, Mr. Pharrell and four of his closest friends from high school spent countless hours at the range while having fun shooting steel and paper targets at all distances using only one or two rifles. They were known among the community for trying all sorts of new positions that they read about in magazines and competed to see who could perform the best. When all of a sudden it happened, someone developed what looked like a small bump and a red area and then out of nowhere an insatiable itchy rash. It was the dreaded facialis bumpinosis, better known as cheek piece rash. So now every time we come home from the range, our wives would know when we used each other's equipment. That's when we came up with the original formula for Feral Pharrell's Cheek Piece Rash Reducer. Using a proprietary blend of lemon oil, antibacterial petroleum jelly, and our secret sauce, we've managed to cut down the effects of Cheek Piece Rash so you can come home to your family smelling squeaky clean with a fresh face that they'll recognize each time. Now available in three different scents including Old Spice, Brute, and Irish Spring. Next time you go to the range, make sure you bring Feral Pharrell's Cheek Piece Rash Reducer so you can share the experience with your buddies and not take it home to your family. Feral Pharrell's, we're doing stuff. Well, we've eaten up a ton of time today. I have time for a quick shooter shout out from one of our listeners out east named Mike Martinez. Mike wanted to give a shout out to Haley Robinson from North Carolina. Mike mentioned that she's a junior shooter, a distinguished rifleman, a two-time President's 100 shoot-off competitor, and a three-time P100 finisher. Recently, she's also won the Reduced Course North Carolina State High Power Championship. Personal opinion here, I'm not surprised she'd win. I first met Haley when I was squatted with her at my first time at Oak Ridge, Tennessee a few years back. I remember her destroying the target in offhand. Now me, not knowing anyone at the sport at the time, had no idea who she was. I instantly watched all my leg points disappear from my eyes as she kept hitting 10 after 10 after 10. In desperation, I asked how many points she needed to go distinguished. Of course, she politely let me know that she already had earned the distinguished badge, which was useless comfort to me because I shot like garbage that day. But that was one of the first times that I've seen her shoot lights out. A well-deserved shout-out to Haley. I also want to let you in on a quick word from Mike Martinez out east who had a different way of approaching wind clicking. He was thoughtful enough to let me share some of his thoughts which may make it easier when you're out on the range trying to quickly estimate how many clicks you're going to need for a given crosswind by using a constant, which makes it fairly easy for him. Mike writes about the Sierra 77 Grain Match King, Think 3 at 300. A 3 mile an hour wind at 300 yards is approximately 1 minute of angle. At 200 it's half a minute. At 600 you double it. For the 80 grain class bullet you can use a 4 mile an hour crosswind and put that at 2 minutes of windage. 
If you're shooting a 30 cal with an M1 or an M14 using 155 to 175 grain bullets, the method is the same, but you're using a 4 mile an hour constant. So at 300, 4 miles an hour of crosswind would give you 1 minute of windage. Half at 200 and then double it at 600. Mike mentions that you can fine-tune it by finding your actual velocity and just adjusting it for the wind's velocity as necessary. He also brought up a neat little approximation using the first digit of the bullet's G1BC. If you're shooting a 6mm bullet, say, with a G1BC of .531, then you can use that 5 mile an hour as your constant. So in this case, 5 miles an hour of crosswind is 1 minute of windage at 300. Half at 200 and double it at 600. Rough estimates, of course, but gets you in the ballpark and can be easily helpful for those first few shots. He adds that if you're shooting at 1,000 yards, then generally each mile an hour will generally push you 3 quarters of a minute with a solid match rifle and up to 1 full minute with a 175 grain 308. Mike, thanks for your input here. Obviously, everybody's mileage is going to vary here, but this is a great few tips if you want to approach calculations a little differently than the way I suggested earlier. I want to pass along one more tip of my own on an unrelated topic. If you are struggling to remember how to make electronic targets work with your tablet and you're continuously fighting it match after match, download a dedicated browser that you normally don't use on your tablet just for match days. In other words, if you constantly use Chrome when you're at home, then download Firefox. If you always use Safari, then download Silk. In that other browser, open two tabs and type in one of the tabs the address for ShotMarker and in the other tab the address for Silver Mountain. That way, when it's match time, you can just connect to the Wi-Fi signal and tap on the tab with the correct product. I'm assuming if you're listening to a podcast, then it shouldn't be too undoable, but don't ever hesitate to ask somebody to help you get set up on the system because it is really handy and it's exactly what I do. So what do we have on the horizon? Well, honestly, not much because it's October. We have a Tuesday night match where I'm going to try a bunch of this stuff that I've been working on with the Elysio and 6BR. October 7th and 8th are the Fall Classic and the Bjornstad Trophy at Milan, Illinois, which is an 80-round across-the-course match on Saturday and a 3x600 on Sunday. We have a match at Dead Zero Shooting Park in Spencer, Tennessee on October 21st. I see a two-day match in Barrie, Illinois, which looks like it's an 80-round match across the course on Saturday that weekend and a 4x600 on Sunday. Hoping to get to Racine, Wisconsin for a league match on Thursday. Man, it's been a hot minute since I've been up there. Uh, possibly the Talladega Southern 600 in Alabama on the second week of November. And then not much of anything because it's cold outside. Between you and me and anyone that's listening to all this whining on the range, I'm hoping this Elysio saga comes to a quick end. It'd be nice to have back my finger-flicking, bolt-flying tack driver that I've been working with all this fall, but who knows how this journey's going to end. I have only a few more matches with this rifle in the next week or so, so I'm hoping to get an episode out to you in the next week or two, but it'll be schedule-dependent. But I have good intentions. If you have something to add, chat about, rant, fight me on, or just give a shooter shout-out, let me know. I'm listening at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. 
Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.